You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A relatively uneventful week in our nation, don't you think? Of course not. Sparks flew this week, right? Naturally, I'm talking about my visit to the dentist. <laughs> Literally, I was having some dental work completed, and just as the dentist moved towards my mouth, drill in hand, she said, and I quote, if you see sparks fly, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> I mean, I don't tend to get super anxious about dental visits. I don't dread them, I think, like some, but... That's one way to change my mind. If you see sparks fly, there's nothing to worry about. She wasn't joking. Well, the visit went fine, actually, and no sparks flew, thanks be to God. But of course, other sparks did fly this week. Sparks flying tend to create anxiety, fear, heat, fire. And I'm not just talking about sparks at the dentist, obviously. Regardless of where one stands on the matter of abortion, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is historic. Historic. It has manifold implications for our society and for our lives together. So how are Christians to navigate cultural moments when the sparks fly? How are Christians to love their neighbor in moments where vitriol abounds? Consider the Civil War. Both armies in the Civil War thought God was on their side. And churches did not shy away from telling them so. In his second inaugural address, President Lincoln gently but clearly reminded the nation that truth requires that two mutually contradictory positions cannot both be right or true at the same time and in the same way. His actions embodied a distinction between, on the one hand, the logical status of a moral claim, whether or not something is right or wrong, and the pastoral reality of healing a nation. Speaking with a pastoral tenor, President Lincoln said the following, both sides read the same Bible, pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has His own purposes." End quote. Eloquent words from President Lincoln. My job this morning is not to reinforce what you might already believe or to convince you of 
anything that the Bible teaches about abortion, even though I have strong convictions on the matter myself, neither do I hope to instruct you into a a deeper biblical worldview, as, as important as that might be. My hope, my hope this morning is to entrust you into this moment to God, to walk with you there into a deeper relationship with the one who can heal our nation. Because at moments of deep social division and bitterness, we must ask the question, what now? What now? What posture must the church take? How can we be a source of healing and wholeness? In short, we are called to take our judgment to the cross, to the cross, for it is on the tree of the cross that we find the fruit of the Spirit of which Paul speaks. We need instruction from Jesus who takes us there to the cross, and so we turn to our gospel reading from which we've just heard. The first group of people that Jesus meets today are the Samaritans as he goes to their village. And as it turns out, they don't really want to host this traveling Jewish teacher and prophet. And so when James and John see how Jesus is rejected, they ask their Messiah whether they should, like Rambo, call down fire from heaven to burn the place up. The reaction The reaction to those who reject the way of Jesus is violence. And I don't think that this is an idle threat on their part. Remember, Jesus has already sent out the 12 in this gospel to preach the kingdom of God on the one hand and to heal. So the disciples are to be at least about two things, preaching the kingdom of God and healing. But they knew the protocol that Jesus had given them. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor money. Do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They've got their orders earlier from in the Gospel of Luke. And not only have they now been rejected, but their Messiah has also been rejected. So it's time for judgment, according to James and John, Elijah style. They want to bring it on. And yet Jesus' rebuke to them is clear. He rebukes them for their Rambo-esque desire to fry off a few Samaritans. The reason for this is clear enough. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to save all people, including Samaritans. Jerusalem is code language for the cross. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And so it makes no sense for Jesus to kill in judgment the very people for whom he was soon going to die in mercy and in grace. Given that, it may then seem odd the turn that Jesus takes in verses 57 through 62. He pivots seemingly to a kind of downright off-puttingness towards those who encounter the kingdom of God. This same Jesus who was 
deferentially kind towards the rude Samaritans who refused to welcome him now seems a bit rude towards some folks who seem eager to follow after him, to welcome him, to jump on the kingdom bandwagon. Two people volunteer with earnest zeal to follow Jesus, and a third person is directly called at Jesus' initiation. And their reasons for being rejected, or at least seriously put off by Jesus, vary a little, but none of the reasons seem outlandish, do they? Why would Jesus scare off one man by promising him a homeless existence? Why would Jesus seem so brusque toward an individual whom he called himself at the same moment the man was sunk deep in grief over a dead father? Why would Jesus refuse so much as a familial farewell for the final fellow? It all seems rather over the top, doesn't it? I mean, surely we're not to conclude from these verses that followers of Jesus may not sleep in their own beds at night. Surely we are not to take away from Luke 9 the idea that funerals are forbidden to followers of Christ. Surely we are not to conclude that loving our families and having normal attachments to them count as disqualifying looks back from the plow when it comes to kingdom work. Surely. Is Luke 9 then a reminder of gospel commitment in the midst of our ordinary lives? Or is it a call to quit our ordinary lives in favor of a gospel-focused ministry that will shove aside all the usual trappings of life? In other words, is it hyperbole or literal prescription? Which is it? Well, the answer is more difficult actually. It's not as simple. The answer is simply yes. It's over the top, just like the requirements for discipleship that we cannot do in our own strength. Only Jesus can take us there to the place of full submission to His cross. We cannot get there in our own strength, but He can get us there, for there we will find all that we need the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul reminds us, that is the fruit which grows on the tree of the cross. One of my favorite sayings is a motto that comes from the Carthusian monks. The cross is steady while the world is turning. The cross is steady while the world is turning. It is abundantly clear that we live in a deeply divided nation where Many feel marginalized and afraid, while others feel relief and joy and a sense of justice. Some feel that their team has won after having lost for a long time, while still others feel that their team has lost after having a long season of victory. But to be overwhelmed by an enduring sense of anxiety on the one hand or elation on the other hand is to court the dangerous lie that the political game is ultimately the source of our salvation. Or at least such responses press us to deeply ponder at bottom in whom is our ultimate hope and trust grounded. You see, the church must find its hope first and foremost in the wisdom 
and in the pattern of the cross, which is to say the place where we are called to mutual, mutual repentance and humility towards a love that obliges us to reach out and to exercise compassion, not only to our neighbor, Jesus tells us, but even to our enemy, which is pretty inclusive then of everyone. At the foot of the cross, both those overwhelmed with anxiety and those overwhelmed with joy are, are humbled by a hope that is not abstract, but that is mediated by the body of Jesus into whom people from different parties and teams are bound and through whom the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. For the joyful, there is the reminder that pride and political power put Jesus on the cross. So we have to be careful where we put our trust. For the anxious, there is the hope that political power does not have the last word. So we must not be overwhelmed. The last word has been spoken on his cross. His name is Jesus, and he calls the church to model a better way. For it is at the foot of the cross where we might be able to hear this word this word, Jesus, we might be able to hear him even in the other, the one with whom we disagree, even the one across the political aisle. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If Jesus's first team of disciples included both a tax collector, Matthew, and a zealot, Simon, two people radically opposed to one another's positions, then there is more space for listening and patience than we're initially inclined to allow. You see, the church that is destined to celebrate together in the new heavens and the new earth, we have to learn how to suffer together across divisions to model reconciliation, to model it and most importantly, to suffer with those who suffer. For this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Only when we have learned this will we be able to understand the good news of the cross, the great leveler, leveler of all humanity. So after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln spoke to the country, seeking to move them forward towards reconciliation. He said the following, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. At the time when this was written by Lincoln, the Washington National Intelligencer, a newspaper, recognized the importance and poetry of this conclusion when it reported that these words are, quote, equally distinguished for patriotism, statesmanship, benevolence, and deserve to be printed in gold. But what Lincoln called for required something deeper, something printed in blood. The self-denial of the cross. It looks as though 
The only way we will ever see this self-denial as a source of comfort is if we die and are reborn in the Spirit through Christ. We are called to put off the ordinary ways of defining value and bring to life a whole new set of values. And the place to start is by admitting that without God, we are lost in sin's wilderness and are unable to find our own way out. Like those in our gospel reading, at best, our response so often will be judgment of others, wanting to bring down the fire. At worst, our response to Jesus will be indifference to the demands of discipleship, turning back. We have to take our hands off the familiar plow, and then and only then will we be able to hear the words of the one who says, follow me to the cross. Following him with our judgment and our indifference, because there we will find enough grace for both ourselves and our enemy and everyone in between. In short, we're called to go to the cross because there alone we will find the fruit growing on that hard wood of the tree of the cross of Christ's Spirit available to each one of us, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May we go with Him there and find once again the true freedom, the true freedom to which Christ has called us, of which Paul reminds us for freedom Christ has set us free. I pray that is the kind of freedom we inhabit as His church. Amen.